Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. So continue uh, sitting at the feet of Lady Wisdom, learning what it means uh, to be a wise believer. If you recall here in these opening nine chapters, Solomon addresses his son, which of course gives us a picture of what it looks like for the king of kings uh, to address his own children and to show what it means uh, to walk as royal heirs of the heavenly kingdom, even here in this life. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth and you are caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go and hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. I think we've all received uh, that same email at least once in our lives where uh, a Nigerian prince has somehow gotten a hold uh, of your contact information and he needs your help. He has millions in stock, but he's unable to secure them and get them out of the country. But if you would just lend him, if you would just pledge your support of only a few thousand dollars, help cover the expenses for a wire transfer, then he'll split his inestimable inheritance with you. Please help this poor, needy person. It seems too good to be true. We might actually think that nobody really gives into such things, and as I was looking to see how many of these scams actually work, it turns out that just, uh, there was a, an NBC report a few years ago that said that uh, around, um, uh, in 2018, Americans had lost around $700,000 due to such fraudulent activity. So it might not work on everybody, but it does work. Perhaps the scam might be more subversive, not just this a week. Uh, uh, typically, I don't answer phone numbers that I don't recognize. And because of this funeral that I'm officiating, the number came up from the town that I'm officiating the funeral in. And so I answered it. And it turns out the number that I received, the phone call, came from the Department, Department of Homeland Security, saying that one of my packages had been seized and red flagged, and that to ensure I was not a terrorist, I needed to provide them with my bank account information so that they could ensure that I was not, I guess, embezzling funds. Uh, I figured I would roll the dice with the government and just hang up on them. We laugh at some of these calls. Uh, sometimes we find the stories humorous, but I think it becomes less funny when you hear of those countless stories of such scams that do work on the elderly, as many of these scams are geared towards. When they pledge their entire life savings to invest in this once-in-a-lifetime business opportunity from a complete stranger... I think the great difficulty comes when you have these people who have a really generous heart and you hear a really sad story uh, and you want to do whatever you can to help them. And it's so easy, I think, for the charitable heart to become exploited in such circumstances if they do not learn to appropriate wisdom especially when the stranger might use religion to pressure you into getting financially entangled in what could wreak total disaster on your life. 
Well, Solomon gives us some practical wisdom this evening. Be careful how you give because your financial stewardship matters. I'd like us just to consider two things in the short passage this evening. First, I'd like us to consider the matter of the snare. You see that in verses 1 and 2. And then the solution that Solomon gives in verses 3 to 5. So the snare and the solution. Well, we see the situation right here before us. There's a stranger who has now approached you and asks for financial help. Perhaps he's asked you to co-sign on a business loan. He wants to open up a Wendy's in Corvallis. What a great business opportunity. The closest Wendy's is a half hour away. That is a travesty to the town of Corvallis. And it's sure to make a killing. Way better than In-N-Out. Shots have been fired. But if you co-sign on this particular loan, the man with the, the surefire business opportunity promises to share his profits with you once the business becomes stable. You don't have to put anything down right away. You just have to promise to co-sign your name to a piece of paper. He promises he has the funds, but he just needs you to vouch for him at the bank, as it were. You think this is too, too good to be true. What could go wrong? The old-fashioned word for this is surety. The person who pledges to make the payment, if the original signer of the loan defaults on his payments, you promise to stand in his place as the surety to cover all of his bills. If you cannot make the payments, you, it now falls to you to pick up the pieces. And that's the scenario we see here. It might be a scam. It might not be a scam. Actually, the, 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 the context is you don't know which way it is. Uh, at first, Solomon uses this very ambiguous language of, of neighbor. It, it could be translated as neighbor, companion, friend. It could be somebody that you've known for a while. It could be a good guy. It could be a bad guy. And yet, by the end of verse 1, he makes it very clear that this neighbor is, in fact, a stranger. You don't know his reputation. You're not able to vouch for him. He is not a trusted neighbor, even if he lives next door to you. This person is a stranger. You don't know anything about him. Good, bad, you are unable to tell. And look what happens. You didn't think things through carefully enough, and now disaster has happened, and you have pledged your finances, your estate, to be his surety. Solomon here speaks... Um, echoing the words of the esteemed Admiral Akbar from A Turn of the Jedi. It's a trap. You see the language here in verse 5. You are like a hunted animal. You have pledged, you've signed the contract. In the ancient world, you would have shaken hands on the matter. And if you have shaken hands on the matter, the deed is done. There is no backing out. You cannot renege on your oath. You know, there is a, a scene in one of my favorite kind of American comedies, the show called The Office, where uh, the, the office manager finds out that he's in all the great financial trouble. And so he realizes that all, what he needs to do is to declare bankruptcy. So what does he do? He steps out into the main office and shouts at the top of his lungs, I declare bankruptcy, thinking that's all he needed to do. Doesn't quite work like that. Your oath is your bond. 
And here in the modern world, that oath, of course, is substantiated when you sign on the dotted line of a legal contract. I want you to think of what happened in Joshua chapter 9, where Israel had, as they made their way into the promised land, it had been entrusted to them to purge the land of the inhabitants of Canaan. Not an act of ethnic cleansing, not an act of genocide, but they were instructed to serve as an instrument of God's hand of judgment upon an apostate people. And one of the Canaanites in the land, the Gibeonites, hear of the plan and they concoct a ruse. They pretend to be refugees coming in from a far country seeking asylum. And so they show up and say, hey, look, we're your new neighbors. We just made it from a far and distant land and we are asking for your protection. Please make a pledge with us. And so what does Israel do? They vow without consulting the Lord, without thinking through and investigating the matters, they say, of course we'll protect you. And then next thing you know, it turns out that they are Canaanites living just over the hill. Now Israel is under obligation to keep their oath. Even though they've been conned, they are not able to renege on their oath. And so Gibeon becomes a thorn in their flesh. See, our oaths matter. Even if you get uh, trapped in a ruse, you have voluntarily been the one who has made this oath. This is why you have to be very careful about the oaths that you do give. And that's why Solomon says here, give no pledge to the stranger. You don't know if they're trying to exploit your goodwill. You know, to clarify, Solomon here is not critiquing charitable giving. We see both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, giving is a hallmark of Christian fellowship. That Greek word there being koinonia. You remember as we made our way through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 last year. It's so central in these, this, this voluntary giving and caring for people, and yet at the same time, uh, the Bible calls for wisdom in who you give to and how you give. You find the Bible's not even categorically opposed to lending money, money. And yet at the same time, we find that five times in the book of Proverbs, Solomon condemns becoming surety for the stranger. What are we to make of this? Perhaps we could put it this way. Charitable giving is good, but it should not be done thoughtlessly. I remember when I lived in Wheaton on my days off, I'd take the train downtown to Chicago to walk around. It's a beautiful city. Love the architecture. But as soon as you get off the train, just about every street corner you're on, you have somebody asking you uh, for money. And it's not a bad thing to uh, help out somebody. Uh, typically what I'd do instead of giving money is I'd offer to take them to a restaurant to eat. And usually I'd get turned down saying, no, just give me the money instead. I go, no, no, thank you. But think what would happen if you just wanted to give to everybody who asked you for money. In theory, it sounds good. It sounds magnanimous. The problem is, if you're anything like me, you wouldn't make it three blocks without going broke. Part of the problem is we have limited resources. Furthermore, you don't have any way to determine whether or not it is a scam or not. 
In an ideal world, right, if all of us were as rich as Elon Musk, we would have virtually unlimited resources and it'd be no problem to give to every person along the way. But the reality is our resources are finite. And so we have financial duties and obligations to serve others around us as well. Of course, the illustration that I just gave of giving is slightly different than what Solomon sees here. This is not simply an act of voluntarily giving, saying, hey, five bucks, you know, be on your way. Solomon's envisioning somebody who has pledged their livelihood, uh, put their future into the hands of somebody that they do not, do not know. But yet, it still brings home this really important point, I think, that Scripture presents to us a hierarchy of duties when it comes to financial provision for others. And you think first off, first in rank is, of course, giving to the Lord. As you see in the life of the people of God, giving of our first fruits to the Lord Himself. And yet, secondly, we are called to ensure that our immediate family is taken care of. Now, this isn't just pious counsel. This is not simply vestiges of the Old Testament that we now can freely disregard. This is not even an optional add-on to the faith. Even when you read the New Testament, you find that such commands are central to Christianity. Consider what Paul says when he writes to Timothy. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This is the New Testament saying this. If you do not provide for your own household, you are not a Christian, Paul says. You're worse. Paul basically goes out of his way to say even unbelievers get this. This is part of our common duty to our families. The important word that Scripture will use is that of stewardship. We give to the Lord cheerfully, but then we also provide for our family dutifully. Next in line, after the Lord and providing for your own family, there is the needs of the church. As Paul writes to the church of Galatians, we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, Paul does not say exclusively to those who are the household of faith, so the Bible is not prohibiting charitable giving to unbelievers, not by a long shot. But again, we have to recognize that there is a proper ordering to our financial stewardship, even when it comes to giving. There is a primacy of place given to caring for your immediate family, and then for caring for fellow Christians, uh, first and foremost, before uh, caring for those um, that you do not know. It's not that we neglect the world. Again, do not misunderstand me. Paul says, let us do good to everyone. And he says, especially, not exclusively, to the household of faith. The, the, the point here is that we have to appropriate wisdom in who we give to and how much to give. That's the point. We, we cannot give thoughtlessly. We have to do this carefully. Everything in its proper order. So coming back here to what Solomon says, we ask, well, what's the, what's the big problem? What's the deal? Why does Solomon front load this in the foundational introductional section to the book of Proverbs? 
really sandwiched between large sections warning against adultery and sexual immorality. Now he talks about not, you know, uh, putting up a, becoming a surety for a stranger. Why is this so important? Why should I not pledge the family farm to co-sign that loan to help this stranger open up his own Wendy's franchise? Again, I want you to consider the ramifications if he defaults on his payments. Now you are left having to foot the bill. And if you can't afford it, what happens? You lose the farm. and The very means of providing for your own family. In an act of no doubt well-intentioned charity to a stranger, you have now failed in your primary obligation to your own family. You see, the point Solomon is getting at here, I think, is this, that to pledge your livelihood for a stranger puts the welfare of your entire family at risk. It upends and subverts the natural order of things. It might seem kind, but it is the act of a fool, as you have now failed in your primary duty to care for those who have been entrusted to your care such as your wife, your children, and perhaps even ailing parents. But we find this in this situation, it's too late. Solomon's son has already been caught in a trap. He can't get out. He's made a vow. He has signed the contract. There's no backing out. What is he to do? He's been ensnared. What's the solution? Well, Solomon gives the words of wisdom here in the latter half of this section, verses 3 to 5. He says, you've got to do whatever you can to disentangle yourself from this situation before it is too late. In other words, or in particular, you need to plead your case with a relentless, tireless urgency. And just kind of reflecting this week on this particular passage, how many times does Jesus use the scenario of a debtor in his parables. The situation where somebody has fallen into great financial debt because of, for, uh, of poor financial stewardship. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, it's towards the end of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to him with, uh, with him to court. Lest your accuser hands you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So here is Jesus, one greater than Solomon, appropriating the very language that Solomon uses here in terms of our own lives, even as citizens of heavens on earth. Matthew chapter 18, our Savior tells the story of a man who is unable to pay his debts and he pleads with his creditor for mercy. We all know the story that uh, that creditor says, oh, you're forgiven. And of course, the man whose debts have been forgiven turns around and refuses to show that same generosity to those under him. But the point here is this, financial stewardship matters. Keeping our oaths matter, so be careful in both. And for this person who has been caught in this snare, he should plead his case with the one to which he has been bound to get free from this situation before things go south. There's an older word for this sort of relentless pleading. That word there is importunity. 
Now you see the concept here in verse 3. The ESV has it like this, go hasten and plead urgently. Quite literally, uh, the text reads, go and prostrate yourself on pieces of silver and press your case. There's this kind of tenacious, almost like bullying, bullying-like quality to this pleading where you will not relent, you will not get up. You become an absolute nuisance and annoyance till they finally let you go just to get you off their back. I think we see such types of importunity in two particular places in Scripture. I think one is reminded in the first place in Genesis chapter 32 of Jacob with Esau. Remember what happened with Jacob and his brother, Jacob, has stolen his brother's birthright and has fled the country. Now for 14 years, he has procured a large family and a great inheritance, and he has decided it is time to come home. And as he makes his way home, he hears that his brother has found out that he's coming home and is on his way to meet Jacob, along with 400 other men. Jacob owes his brother. At least that's what es how Esau sees it. And Jacob is scared, frightened out of his wits. So what does he do? In his craftiness, in his ingenuity, he begins to break up his kind of uh, caravan into different uh, uh, compartments different installments, and he takes some of uh, the great wealth that he has amassed, and he sends it forward a day in advance as gifts and tribute to his brother in hopes of appeasing, that Hebrew word there is propitiating, making atonement for uh, the rift that has occurred between himself and his brother, this attempt to form, in effect, some form of reconciliation. Of course, Jacob does another thing, and uh, something that I think we should not overlook. He prays feverishly. The Lord, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of the steadfast love and faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, for I fear that he might come and attack me. Second situation we find is in the New Testament, Luke chapter 18, where Jesus begins to tell yet another one of his proverbs. Remember that word parable means proverb. It means a riddle. There's one greater than Solomon giving a very similar type of situation where there is a... And, and of course, Luke prefaces this, says the point of this parable that Jesus gives was to teach his disciples to practice importunity in prayer. He tells the story of an, of an, of an old widow who continues to knock on the door of an unjust judge every day, saying the same thing over and over and over again, avenge me, my adversary. And she is relentless in it, day in, day out. When the dawn rises, she says, avenge me, my adversary. When he goes on his lunch break, she says, avenge me, my adversary. When he steps out of the office on his way home from work, she says, what, avenge me, my adversary. She stands out his home at night. And this man, wicked as he is, he finally relents and, and vindicates her. Why? So that she can get off his back. And Jesus says that is the model for prayer. 
And if this woman does it to an unjust judge, how much more do you think your heavenly Father will hear you who is just? And yet there's a certain importunity here that Solomon describes that is tantamount to that same type of relentless tirelessness in seeking to extricate yourself from this particular situation. Solomon simply says, if you've been ensnared in such a a financial fiasco, this is the very thing you need to be doing. You need to become annoying as all get out. It's the only way that you will be saved from the mess that you have made. And of course, by implication, there's a wiser path, isn't there? Don't get caught in this situation to begin with. Stranger comes up and and offers that too-good-to-be-true financial investment. You say, no, thank you, and you run in the other direction. Why? Because you have other obligations. You should not put your family at risk for these high-risk financial investment opportunities, particularly with a stranger. It is foolish to the uttermost. You might be well-intentioned, but it does not make you wise. To pledge your livelihood on behalf of the poor, defenseless stranger sounds loving. It sounds magnanimous. It sounds pious. But it is utter folly. In fact, the point that Solomon's getting at here is that it is a, complete, a total act of impiety, why do I say that? Well, the term, I think for many of us, when we think of pious, we, we think of kind of the, uh, the affect one gives in their public prayers. Oh, here are the, the pious sounding prayers that this man gives. But the word piety actually means duty, obligation. And, and the very act that you're doing runs antithetical to your actual obligations as a husband and as a father. It is impiety. In pledging your goods to a stranger, you run the risk of putting your family in danger. How many charlatans have tried to exploit the elderly in similar, similar schemes? Perhaps very well-meaning elderly folks who think, well, uh, maybe I should give because as a Christian I'm called to give. And here Solomon says, no, yes, you're, you're to give, yeah, of course, but, but be careful Exercise wisdom. It is not folly to say no to things like this. In fact, it is totally wise not to get roped into such a scheme. How many young people have been hoodooed into giving, manipulated by pious-sounding pleas that this is the Christian thing to do? But here we find this is not piety. This is folly. When it comes to finances, we must be wise stewards Because God has entrusted to each of us to care for the families that he has entrusted to us. And we are limited in the resources that he has given us. The old saying goes, money does not grow on trees. If it does, uh, please give me some. We must exercise prudence in our financial entanglements. Because we have a web of obligations and finite resources. To deny such realities, Paul says, is to deny the Christian faith. It's the harsh reality of being human. We do not own it all. And so we cannot do it all. 
And yet when it comes to the Gospels, that's the surprising thing about so many of our Savior's parables. These proverbs that uh, attest to the heavenly kingdom that has limitless resources, spoken by a king who is greater than Solomon, that king in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. Our resources are finite, our debts are many, but here is a God who is infinite in resources, one who is infinite in mercy, one who has provided himself to be the surety to cover all of our spiritual debts, namely the debt of sin. I'm going to consider Job for a moment. Here is a man who, in the midst of such catastrophic disaster, disaster that he did not see coming, he pleads with those around him to help him to stand as surety for him, and nobody will. Job says this in Job 17. He says, O Lord, lay down now a pledge for me with yourself, for who is there that will be my guarantor? Who will be my surety? Nobody will pledge their livelihood to come to my aid. David likewise prays the same thing. O Lord, be a surety for your servant for good. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. In other words, here is David saying, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I am helpless. Come to my aid. And that's the real condition that we find ourselves in, that though we are strangers and aliens in the commonwealth, though we were strangers, in the surpassing richness of His grace, God sent His Son to be our surety to pay our debts. Even though the Lord commands us that we can't do it because of our finite resources on the horizontal level with others, the Lord who is infinite in His resources has done so with us. We who were strangers has pledged Himself to be a surety for us. God has done what Israel was unable to do. Even what Israel was forbidden from doing. That's why Jesus has taught us to pray. Forgive us our debts. That's why Jesus uses so many proverbs to speak of the debt that we owe God in terms of financial transactions because I think we understand what it is like to be in the midst of financial hardship. And Jesus says there's a greater hardship that you face. Who will stand as your surety? Who will pledge his livelihood? Who will stake the farm for your salvation? Now that's the gospel that we have. Christ has staked the farm for us. He has pledged his livelihood to deliver us from the debt of sin. It's an old-fashioned word that we see in our hymnal, and I think it's a word that we, again, so often gloss over. How vast the benefits divine which we in Christ possess, redeemed from guilt and shame, our glorious surety undertook to satisfy for man, to grant to us grace from before the world began. Jesus, my great high priest, he offered himself and died. Now behold, my soul at freedom has been set. My surety has paid the dreadful debt. That is the particular situation that even our hymnody attests to. Christ has been our surety, even when we have been unable to become a surety for anyone else. 
Arise, my soul, arise, shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Or as Paul writes to the church of Corinth, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, so that you, out of his bankruptcy, out of his poverty, might become rich. That is the good news given to sinners. Good news given to debtors. Though we are unable to become surety for others, and though we should not even try to become a surety for a stranger, Christ became a surety for us. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the redemption that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we consider the weight and magnitude of debt that we owe you because of our sin, we give you thanks and praise that there has one uh, there has come one who has stood in our place and pledged his livelihood uh, to offset the debts that we could not pay. We pray that the Lord Jesus Christ will receive all of our praise to whom belongs all glory and splendor and majesty. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.